0: I trust you had a very Merry Christmas. Uh, I know some of you, uh, the, some of our family are still having a Merry Christmas. I think we have half our body here today. Uh, but it is delightful to be in the house of the Lord, to be here together, to celebrate uh, the day after Christmas. And this is a very odd Sunday in, for churches, actually, just because we know that so many people are going to be traveling, and we know that we're going to have some guests. And if you're our guest here today, we are, we are very glad that you're here well, with us Hopefully you filled out the friendship registry uh, and passed that uh, around, which is underneath your seat. If you haven't done so yet, we would encourage you to do so. But today, since it is one of these, it's the last Sunday of the year, the last Sunday of the year. And that's hard almost to fathom because it's not just the end of a year, but it's the end of a decade. Can you believe that? Another decade. It, it seems just like yesterday that I was. we were all preparing for Y2K. Remember that? I mean, and, and to stop and think and gather ourselves, and it's a time usually when things slow down. So this is a week usually, not for everyone, but for most, it's a, it's a time of in-between, a time to relax, to be with family. Students are at home on break. Uh, for those who uh, you know, might be in some type of work, you might have a half day if you're so blessed. and Others are, are simply just, you know, have this week off, and it's time to relax to be with family, to celebrate uh, the reason for this season, which is Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. But what we, we, we fail to do sometimes is reflect on the past year. And in the next few days, you're going to see a lot of different things on the news of those who uh, died this past year or even this past decade remembering. And you know, as we remember, it's a very biblical concept to do or to practice what I call the discipline of remembrance. To stop and reflect on what God has done. To look back over the last few years. I mean, think about it. In 2004, on this day, what happened, you know, in our world? There was the tsunami. Remember that? On this day, that's what happened. So many thousands of people lost their lives. Their homes were destroyed. And we need to remember these things. To remember the blessings we have. And not just catastrophes like that, natural disasters, but other things that have occurred, we we have a tendency to forget, and in our world today, we can forget quickly. I mean, we are traveling at nanoseconds, we are so busy trying to just get through the day that we don't take time to reflect on how far we've come. And God wants us to stop and reflect on how far we've come, because if we don't stop and reflect then we are in danger of repeating the same mistakes that we were guilty of doing the first time. Or as the historian George Santignana once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So we pause to remember and not forget. And in our nation, we have paused to remember different things. We have holidays set aside so we won't forget. We have memorials. Some of you who have been around, you see different memorials like... I think of uh, December 7th, 1941. There's a memorial dedicated to what happened that day, the Pearl Harbor Memorial. If you were to go there, you could see down there in the ship. So why? So we won't forget what happened. We won't forget the sacrifice these individuals made or the tragedy of different things. And we can so easily forget what God has done in our lives. So it's imperative for each one of us to stop... And reflect so we don't repeat the mistakes of history do we know that we are capable of great atrocity and great evils and great forgetfulness and continue to perpetuate evil and wickedness and ungratitude and all of these different things so it is it behooves us it's imperative that we remember we go back and reflect actually I was I was laughing the other day I went to uh, the bookstore and I was looking around and uh, I was trying to, uh, I wanted to participate in this thing called the Socrates Cafe, right? That's one for geeks like me. But um, it, was at, it was at Barnes & Noble, and it was this group of people who come together to discuss philosophy. And I wanted to inquire more about it because I'm interested in doing something like that for, uh, evang- uh, for doing evangelism in a very similar way in like a public bookstore, having a discussion. And there's only four people that show up, which was quite disappointing. So I didn't want to just show up and then totally get immersed and then dragged into it for the rest of my life. So I sat by them and kind of listened to the conversation, I got some books. And I, I listened to the conversation, and they didn't really talk about anything philosophically. So I was kind of bored, and I picked up some books, and I started reading these history books. And I was amazed at all of these different stories within history, that things that we have forgotten, tragedies. I mean, it's it's hard for us to believe now, but... Do you know that in in the next few generations, 9-11 might be forgotten? Can you imagine that? It's unthinkable to those of us that saw it, right? Unthinkable. But other generations, they they might forget. Last night, I watched a special. It's kind of a weird thing to watch a special on. But I watched a special on Hiroshima. Some people call it Hiroshima. And what happened in that first atomic bomb? And it was was told from the, the perspective of the survivors. It was fascinating, really. When that bomb dropped in August of 1945, it eradicated people so quickly that only thing was left was a shadow of their existence emblazoned on concrete. I mean, it, it totally evaporated, they disintegrated. And these people were like, We don't want to forget what happened, just like we don't want to forget Pearl Harbor. Or there's other things within history we don't want to forget about. I read about the, I don't know if you've ever read about this historically, uh, the Rape of Nanking which was in China, December of 1937, when the Japanese came into China, and they, what they did to this city is one of the most terrible, horrible things in history. Even reading about it makes you sick. And I, I think of these tragedies, and, and I think, I, we don't want to forget what we are capable of if we forget God. I saw another special. I know this is strange to spend your Christmas vacation, but I saw another special on, on Joseph Stalin And what amazed me about him and individuals like, uh, and the atrocities that he committed, I mean, he killed more people than Hitler. Did you know that? And Pol Pot and all these different individuals combined. What really struck me about him was where he went to school. He went to seminary. Or Friedrich Nietzsche, the man who started the God is Dead movement. That man also was uh, raised in a Christian home with a Lutheran pastor as a father. Training for ministry at one period of time. And left it and became one of the fathers of this postmodernist movement which we find ourselves that pretty much it's nihilism, which it doesn't matter what you do. So we have all of these different individuals, and we realize that they had come from some type of background where they had forgot really the essence and the heartbeat of what God had done in Christ Jesus. And we are capable of doing such evils. So we have to remember, not just so we don't do the evils, but we remember where we have been brought and God's footprints in our lives. That's the whole footprints poem. You remember that one, right? When you're walking, he tells the poem of walking along in the beach and when the times are difficult, he sees one set of footprints and that's because he says, Lord, why did, you, why did you leave me during that time? He goes, no, 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 that's when I carried you. So we have to look back at the footprints in our life to see God at work. And today we're going to turn to a passage, uh, Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, because we're at the end of of the road of a year and a decade and I think it's imperative that we reflect what God has done and the nation of Israel had a short term memory time and time again God is telling them don't forget, don't forget don't forget, don't forget and in the next moment, in the next breath they're like we won't forget Lord hey what have you done for us lately that's what God is, I mean constantly the Israelites are them, like, what have you done for us lately what have you done for us lately and God's saying look back don't forget Egypt, what I did there. Don't forget how I led you, and called you, and brought you up. And now we, what we're going to be doing today is looking through Joshua chapter 24, verses 1 through 28. Now I'm not going to have you stand uh, for the reading of this entire passage, nor do I want to read this all in one set. I want to break this down into sections, and we're going to kind of skip through, because what we're seeing here is a review of Jewish history. And Joshua is renewing the covenant that God had established with His people Israel after they had entered the promised land. And we're going to get a good review here. Now, the question some people ask, why do we need to review this? I mean, for some of us, it's so far removed, we don't understand. But the Bible talks about the Old Testament a great deal. And one of the things it says is that these things happened for us that we might see how God worked within their lives and so that we might be draw encouragement on how we are to live now, whereas 1 Corinthians chapter ten says the Apostle Paul he says this. Now these things took, talking about everything that happened in the Old Testament took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. He's reviewing what happened right before Sinai. So it was written down for us, that we might draw encouragement from this, and we might look at their lives, and we may not make the same mistakes they did. We might miss that part. We might wholeheartedly obey God and what He has for us. But before I get any further into our time in Joshua, and and, uh, I would encourage you to kind of follow along with me as we go through it, because we're going to be taking large swaths of Scripture. I'm going to try to elaborate uh, on what's there. If you're not familiar with Jewish history... I want to help try to show you and take us through uh, what's going on and why it's important for us today and how we can take and live in light of that. But let's, let's pause for a moment and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, I am so grateful to be in the house of the Lord with other believers on this beautiful sunny day. The snow sparkles so clean and brilliant, blazing white outside. Lord, I'm reminded of how your son was transfigured before. Peter and James John or Peter and John how they saw how brilliantly white you became and Lord how we will be one day when we are in your presence forever removed from the stain of sin where we will be at your in your presence delighting in you forevermore Lord I pray today that we might leave this place walking closer with you that we might be able to reflect on our lives and be able to see your footprints carrying us through showing us what it means to follow you. As we examine your people, Israel, may we draw encouragement and inspiration as well as warning, making sure that we avoid the potholes that so easily can bring a wreck to our faith. So, Lord, please be in our time today and glorify yourself to the honor and praise of your glorious Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, I'd like us to go through Joshua chapter 24, 1 through 28. Piece by piece, so stay along with me. Joshua, remember, Joshua has, uh, starts off with him. The book is written by him, and this, he is the successor to Moses. Moses passed the baton to Joshua right before they were to go into the Promised Land. Moses wasn't allowed into the Promised Land because he failed to uphold the Lord as holy in the presence of all of Israel. God told him to speak to Iraq because the people were dying of thirst. So Moses said, "I need to, I, they need water. Moses says, speak to the rock. Rather than do it, he strikes it. God says, because you failed to obey me entirely, you will not enter into the promised land. So the, the torch is handed off to Joshua. Now, if you remember, uh, before they went into the promised land, there something that had occurred. Uh, they had come out of Egypt, and out of all of the different plagues that were wrought upon the Egyptians, and they passed through the Red Sea. They wandered in the wilderness. But before they entered into the promised land, under Moses' leadership, They sent uh, uh, 12 spies into the land to spy it out, to check it, give a report, so they could figure out how to best approach militarily this land. So the 12 spies go, travel around for 40 days, come back with some of the fruit of the land, this big, huge vine of grapes. I mean, it shows how great this land was. And uh, Moses says, give the report. And 10 of the spies says, wow, there are guys out there like Shaquille O'Neal size And they will take us out. There's no way that we can handle these guys. And then Joshua and Caleb come along and they say, they're ready to go. God is going to give us victory. Let's do this. So the people respond and say, we're not going to go. They're too big. We can't handle it. And God says, because you failed to believe and take the necessary step of faith, you're going to be forced now to wander in the wilderness for every day the spies travel the land. Every year, for every, according to every day, the spies travel the land. So they were in there 40 days. They now are forced to be in there 40 years until all that unbelieving generation died, which some conservative estimates put, at, or you know, put between uh, around 2.3, 2.6 million people. All these people are going to die. So that's like for 40 years. That's like so many, like, you know, a thousand funerals a day, something along that line. That's going on in the camp of Israel. Now, during that time though, God is blessing them. Even though they're wandering in the wilderness, He's giving them manna. They're hungry. So it's this manna that comes down from heaven. And then quail. He's giving them this this bird, this food, you know, I know good Boston market chickens, something like that. I mean, it's good food. It's cooked in the bakery and you know of heaven. Can't be that bad. So and then he even gives them water from a dry rock. So he is sustaining them. And he also says, You not only failed, didn't fail to have food, but your sandal didn't even wear out. Even though, I mean, they're, they're getting provided for as this unbelieving generation is dying up and the children are dying around them and these children are growing up and then are, at the end of 40 years, ready to enter into the promised land. Moses dies. Joshua receives the baton of leadership because Joshua and Caleb are the only two because they, were, they uh, didn't follow everybody else but they believed God. God allows them to go into the promised land. So they're a lot older <laughs> than everybody else. They're senior leaders, seasoned senior leaders with zeal. I mean, Caleb even says, you know what? I have enough energy when I was at, uh, at 80 that I had at 40. I'm ready to go. I mean, how many of you that are 80 years old would like to say that you had the same energy now that you did when you were at 40? How many of you are at 40, wish you had the same energy that you had at 20? And he's got all this energy. He's ready to, to go. He's, and and they're, they go in and they take the promised land. Now, if you if you're familiar, you know that they, they took, they conquered many of the peoples, but some of the tribes that made up Israel, remember there were twelve tribes that made up the nation of Israel. Some of them failed to drive out the people of the land. Matter of fact, it's a very tragic part. I have in my Bible very big frowny faces. It says that the tribe of Dan failed to drive out the people of the land. The tribe of Asher failed to drive out the people of the land. The one tribe that really drove everybody out was Judah. But now the people are settled in the land. They did conquer them, but they didn't drive out those people or annihilate them as they were supposed to do. And they are in the land. And at the end of this time, Joshua, as he's getting ready to pass away, he's getting ready to die, calls the leaders, the representatives, to meet at Shechem. There is this town. So he says, we're going to have a meeting. And I want everybody to come, all the leaders, all the big-time leaders from all the tribes. So all the leaders of the tribe show up before the Lord, which means the ark of God is there. And this is where we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 24. So Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. And summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. That's where we see the Ark of the Covenant is there. When it says, presenting themselves before God. It's the understanding His presence is manifested within this camp. And Joshua said to all the peoples, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago. Now here's what he's doing. He's giving a history lesson. To them. Long ago, I took uh, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Now let's get a quick review. Terah was Abraham's father. Abraham is the father of the three major monotheistic religions in the world. You have Judaism, you have Christianity, and you have Islam. Alright? Judaism was part, if we were to look at movies, it's part one. Okay, Christianity is part two, and then Islam is not part three, but a cheap remake that somebody else rewrote and tried to put out there as the same thing. That's what it is. It's not part of the original. It was supposed to be a two-part series, one and two. And then Islam comes along and it says, no, no, we're just as everybody else, but it wasn't written by the same author. A different author tries to masquerade it. All right? So Abraham is the father of these three major monotheistic religions. And he is called, God calls him out of his people, which is more of like the Chaldees, which is Babylon. Uh, now we're looking at Iran, Iraq. That period of or that area of the Middle East calls him out and makes a covenant with him. So this a little bit of a review, but going on. He makes not only a covenant with him, but a promise that he will bless the entire world through him. His descendants. He will be blessed to be a blessing to the entire world earth. He says, and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And this promise continued on through his son, the son of promise. He has two sons that we're most familiar with, Ishmael, but he's not the son of promise. Isaac. Isaac, which by the way, if you are, if you are all familiar with Islam, Islam actually, rather than have Isaac go up to the Mount Moriah to be sacrificed, Muslims have Ishmael. That'll, that's for free, nothing extra. Okay. So, He says, I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And Isaac, Isaac has two kids, twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau's one hairy dude, a real big outdoor guy. Forfeits his blessing, forfeits his birthright. Jacob gets it. He's a mama's boy. He gets it. All right? His name is changed to Israel. All right? Jacob, the word means deceiver means one who grasps the heel. Israel means he wrestles with God. Because he wrestles with God right before he is reconciled to his brother after he'd been sojourning for so many years. I'm giving you a huge Jewish history lesson. Okay? Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Sarah to possess. His name is also Edom. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Remember that? Anybody's ever seen, if you're not familiar with Bible history, and yet you've seen Donnie Osmond and Joseph in his amazing technicolor dream coat? Similar story. Not as quite biblically accurate. Similar story. Okay, Joseph is sold into slavery. He is one of Jacob's 12 sons. He is sold into slavery by his brothers because they're je- jealous of him. Remember, he received a coat of many colors, also known as the coat of, palm, coat of palms, meaning it has... In, in essence, what it meant was is him by getting a coat like that he did, meant he got a double blessing of inheritance. That was one of the reasons why his brothers were jealous of him. So they beat him up, throw him in a pit, sell him into slavery. He ends up going down to Egypt. He ends up uh, working for this guy named Potiphar, which is a really, you know, guy in the government. Uh, Potiphar's wife has the hots for Joseph. I don't know how else to put it. And she, she says, you know, I want you. He says, no way. She tries to get him alone, tries to seduce him. He says, uh-uh, I'm gone. Yet she gets his garment, and then she uh, says, brings her husband home and goes, look what this guy did. And he gets angry, has him put in jail. Then he languishes in jail where he meets some other people that are being put in prison, which is the baker and the cupbearer to the king. Then God, uh, they have these really wild, vivid dreams. Joseph interprets them. And then after, uh, what happens in the dreams is the baker ends up getting killed. Later in life, his dream, he gets killed. Or it has birds eating a basket from his head because he's a baker and uh, the 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 other guy who's the you know the cupbearer to the king is up getting blessed so basically i know i'm cutting through a lot of this but basically the baker gets hanged the cupbearer gets restored during this very difficult time pharaoh is talking to the to the chief cupbearer chief cupbearer and he tells him about joseph joseph is appointed then a leader within egypt because he has this great he interprets the pharaoh's dream that's why the pharaoh was so disturbed that he was talking to the chief cupbearer he has this very vivid dream, and Joseph comes and interprets and says there's going to be this giant famine across the land. First, there's going to be seven years of blessing, then seven years of famine. You need to prepare now. He says, okay, wow, you've got the load on this, so I'm going to put you in charge until that time to make sure everything works. He gets put in charge. The famine comes across the land. Jacob's his father, is really struggling in that he has nothing. They're di- they're, there's famine in the land. So he sends his kids... Long story short, they end up reconciling in their relationship. And then Jacob and his sons, 70 of them, with Joseph's family, 75 in all, move into Egypt. They stay there for many years, I think 430, depending on the exact number, but around 400 years. And during the middle of that, a king arose, a pharaoh arose, who didn't know Joseph, and puts the people into bondage, slavery, slavery. And they persecute them highly because they are populating like crazy. And the Egyptians live in fear of them. So they force them into this slavery. And we know the story. If anybody's seen Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, you know the story. That they were delivered by Charlton Heston. <laughs> not Charlton Heston, by Moses. And believe me, Charlton Heston and Moses, I know it's hard not to think of it, but the more you study Moses, Charlton Heston was not at all like him. Moses had a speech problem. He stuttered a lot. He had a hard time speaking in public, which is hard to believe. Here's Moses, the great Moses, but he's also known, uh, before Christ, as the meekest man to ever walk the face of the earth. And he spoke to God face to face. That's why Moses even says, a prophet will arise like me, which we know is Christ. So, what happens then is, through Moses, the people are, the Israelites are delivered out of bondage. The ten plagues come upon the Egyptians they are released after the death of the firstborn. They cross the Red Sea. Red Sea splits open. They walk across on dry land, and then the water comes crashing in. You know, it's interesting, being in studying this kind of stuff, there are historians that actually believe that, you know, the, the water wasn't that deep. It wasn't a miracle of God for the Israelites to pass through. It wasn't that big deep of water. Well, then it's still a miracle. And people say, why? Well, because the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in knee-deep water, if that's the case. Right? It shows that God's really behind this. And he brings them out then, uh, out of Egyptian bondage. And they're, they're in the wandering in the wilderness as the spies are being sent into the promised land. And then after that, we know that they didn't enter in, as I just shared with you. And they are forced to stay then for 40 years wandering in the wilderness as the people of that unbelieving generation are dead. And then they go in at the end of 40 years. Joshua receives the baton of leadership. And they go and conquer the Promised Land, which really meant they, instead of running out, driving out the peoples, they only subjugated them to forced slavery and manual labor, although some tribes did drive them out. So now, at the end of this conquering, they're here for this covenant renewal ceremony, and Joan, Joshua is reviewing Jewish history with them. So, going on, verse 5 And I sent Moses and Aaron. Aaron was Moses' older brother by three years, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. It's very important to understand why they put chariots in there, because during this period of time, a lot of nations didn't have that. Uh, This was Iron Age, meaning that they had tanks, in essence, in the ancient world. So they had a very formidable army. So they had chariots and horsemen of the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. See, that's the miracle. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan, the Jordan River. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. Okay, I'll get here brief history lesson if you can keep up with me good if you can't get the cd or download the podcast listen slowly uh, what's going on here is balak is the king of moab moab was really afraid that they're right it's almost like the canadian border in the united states the, israel is coming right along ontario in essence wide across the land and in essence the president of the united states is going wow they're getting awfully close so he's saying, he's getting a little bit nervous. He heard what happened in Egypt. So he says, hey, they're going to come against and conquer my land. They're going to invade. So he hires this guy named Balaam. And he says, I want you to curse him for me. And Balaam says, I'm not going to do it. He says, I can't. And he says, I'll send you, he sends more money. He sends more people to go recruit him, more you know, distinguished officials. Finally, long story short, Balaam ends up coming And then rather than curse God, uh, curses the nation, ends up blessing them three times in a very phenomenal fashion. Uh, The book of Numbers uh, really draws this out and even talks about a coming ruler. A scepter would come out of uh, Judah, a ruler. He goes, I see him, but not now. He's coming, but not yet. It's a forecast of Christ, of Jesus coming to be the ruler, the reigner that would come forth from this nation of individuals. So rather than curse, he blesses. But we also know that Balaam, in a very wild way, is an unbelieving man. He's actually killed during the middle of the conquest of Israel by the Israelites. So looking on. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. Balaam wanted to curse, but God wouldn't let him. Matter of fact, he made him bless him. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Mosquito Bites, the Canaanites. Just making sure you're paying attention. Okay? The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Each one of these, a people group that is inhabiting the land, the Jebusites actually inhabited, inhabited the, the city of what is now modern day Jerusalem, the city of Jebus that it was called in ancient times. So, he goes through the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, I want to start drawing some principles out from here. I'd like to pause just for a moment and kind of focus on that. What Joshua is doing is he is saying, don't forget what God has done through you or in you. Don't forget. God is the one who chose Abraham and brought him out. God is the one that gave him Isaac, which was the son of promise. God is the one that chose Jacob who became Israel. God is the one who took the 12 tribes down into Egypt and then brought them forth through a deliverer after putting on the plagues of Egypt and brought him through the Red Sea. God is the active agent there. God is the one who sustained you in the wilderness by giving you manna from heaven and water from a dry rock and quail that comes down from heaven and also making sure that the the sandals of your feet didn't wear out. God is the active agent here. And Joshua wanted the people to understand, it wasn't by your sword, it wasn't by your bow, it was because of God. The psalmist talks about this, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. People are saying that we trust in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own intelligence, in our own pedigree. He's saying, no, 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 God took you from nothing and made you into this great nation that you are today. So what he is saying here, and the first point that I'd like us to take with us as we leave today, is remember what God has done. Remember, what has God done for you? Now people say, not much. Well, after looking and, and studying the, and what's going on in the world, the fact that you are here in the United States benefiting from freedom of others that have purchased for you, that you probably went to a public school system that was other nations don't even have, The fact that you can possibly, you can read. The fact that you have the intelligence to understand what I am saying right now. You didn't make yourself like that. God made you that way. God made you that way. So remember what God has done. Now, what has he done and what did he do to the nation of Israel? Well, look back in our text. He called Abraham first. Abraham, he says in verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. So what he's saying is, is I have taken you from your godless past, and I have given you hope in a future. In essence, I have forgiven your past. And that's drawn out in several passages within Scripture. God has forgiven your past. That's the first thing that I want you to to take home underneath that sub-point. Remember what God has done. God has forgiven your past. Think about that. Think about the worst sin you've ever done. Think about the sins you've done this past year. This past decade. God has forgiven them. If you are in Christ, if you are trusted in Christ... If you are confessed, because if we if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has forgiven our past. As far as from the east is from the west, so far as He removed His sin from our sin from us. We know the North Pole and the South Pole, right? We know that when you're the North Pole, you're only place to go. You know the, the points are North Pole and South Pole, but where's the East Pole and the West Pole? There is not. As far as the East is from the West, so far as God removed our sin from us. By the way, it's a little joke on the side here, but if Santa were real, what language would he speak? North Polish. Anyway, <laughs> saw that yesterday. Couldn't help. Had to share. Bad pastor joke 101. Okay. He has forgiven your past, forgiven your past. Doesn't matter what you've done. Moses was a murderer. So was David. David was a murderer and an adulterer. God forgave them and used them for His glory. God can use anybody. Forgiven your past, I think about what I've been forgiven. Sometimes I forget. I forget that I was the prodigal son. Now I feel like I'm living the life of the elder brother, but. When I pause to think about it, I realize that I, too, am the prodigal son doing all manner of sin. But God has forgiven me, and I don't take that lightly. Look at verse 11 as we see what else God has done. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwelt in them. You eat of the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, what he is doing is he is showing how a promise had been fulfilled. That promise had been made to Abraham. Not only was he blessed to be a blessing for the entire world, but God had promised him a land. This is the fulfillment of that promise. He's saying, I drove them out, and I gave it to you. So what he's saying is, is not only have I forgiven your past, but I have fulfilled my promises to you. Do you know that God always fulfills His promises? Not one promise of God will be made void. Whether or not we believe in the promise, that's the problem. And whether or not the promise is filled in the manner in which we think it should be fulfilled. That's what gets in the way. We have to make sure that we are placing ourselves under God's understanding of Scripture. And sometimes say, I don't know how this is working, God, but I trust you. God will fulfill His promises to you, and He has fulfilled His promises to you. If you are a believer in Christ, you know, and He has promised that I will never leave you nor forsake you. He will never leave you or forsake you. doesn't matter how bad time or things get. I think of different individuals that I've been working with, not only recently, but in the past. And I've seen marriages just dissolve. And I've seen couples stand up at the altar and say, I promise. I covenant before God and these people, nothing but death shall separate us. And we know that that doesn't always happen. I mean, I, I know of a woman got into a car accident. She lost all of her faculties, and she couldn't. She had to learn how to use the bathroom again. She had to learn how to speak. She had to learn all to do all these things. And what did her husband do as soon as the time got tough? I'm gone. I'm gone. And yet, I've known of other individuals. I knew of one man at my my last church. His wife had this disease. Uh, I mean, she had. She, she couldn't touch her. I can't remember the name of the disease, but as soon as he touched her skin, she was in pain, and she ended up gaining, uh, going from like 135 pounds to 245 pounds in one year. And then she sat in a chair, and if you, he couldn't touch her, and she couldn't take care of herself. For 16 years, he came home every day at lunch, took care of his wife. In the morning and in the evening after work, 16 years he did this. That's love. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. See, God, doesn't matter what has done, He will fulfill His promises. It doesn't matter what this world says. It doesn't matter what people try to change the truth of God's Word. It will stand firm forever. He has fulfilled His promises, and He's fulfilled His promises to Israel, even when things seem bleak for them in their history. In slavery, God, how are you going to do this? When are you going to do it? I will do it. In my time, I will do it. So He fulfilled His promises God will fulfill His promises to us. Has He not given us grace when we needed it? Did He not give us a way out from temptation? Has He left us, forsaken us? Not one of God's promises will fail. But what else has God done? When when Israel was in the wilderness, God gave them manna, water, and bread. And the sandal of their feet didn't wear out. Which lets me know that God is faithful in His provisions. He has forgiven your past. He will fulfill his promises. He will fulfill them. And he will be faithful in his provision. Now, that may not happen in the way in which we would like or want, but God will fulfill his provision. That doesn't excuse our disobedience, but God will be there and will provide. Now, we have to modify our understanding of provision, by the way, sometimes. It's not our wants he provides. But our needs, He will provide. He will provide. The question is, is how do we respond to this? We remember what God has done, but how do we respond? Look at verse 16 and 18 with me, if you will. Joshua chapter 24. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. See, they recognize what God had done, and they're responding. They're saying, we are grateful for what He did. See, we not only need to remember what God has done, but we need to respond in gratitude. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Are we grateful? Think about being at Christmas time when you get that present that your your son or daughter got for you that you really didn't want. Do you say to them, "I really don't like this, honey"? Wanting <laughs> gratitude, gracious, grateful that they cared enough to think of you. They loved you. I think of the ten lepers in the New Testament, the book of Luke. They were. <laughs> these ten lepers, some were Jewish, there's a Samaritan in the middle of this, which is kind of a half-breed, and uh, the people, the Israel really hated the Samaritans, but these people were forced to go around saying, unclean! They had to yell this out wherever they went. Can you imagine walking into Jewel going, unclean! Look out! Can you imagine? This is what these people had to do. Unclean! And they, I mean, they not only were cut off they were cut off from their family. People couldn't touch them because they were considered unclean. They could also receive, get this disease. They were ostracized from everyone within society. They were forced to live on the outskirts. I mean, we have no idea what this is like, really, in our modern understanding. And so these, these individuals, they come to Jesus. And Jesus says, Go, he says, go on your way to the priest and make the offerings necessary. And on the way there, they find themselves clean. And only one comes back. And it's a Samaritan. Jesus says, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has the only one returned? Is this this Samaritan? See, that Samaritan came back because he recognized what God had done in his life. And he responded in gratitude. Do we respond in gratitude? Or are we, just like Israel, at times had the, the proclivity to and say, what have you done for me lately? You're not doing it right now. We're like small children. Now, 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 now. I want it now. We don't bother to thank them. Thank Him for what God has done. We need to cultivate an attitude of gratitude. Respond in gratitude and what God has done. Now, let's go look a little bit further. Look at verse 14 with me. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. He's renewing the covenant with Him. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. So even in Egypt, not all the Israelites were doing what God wanted them to do. They weren't all following the Lord wholeheartedly. He says, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. you are not able to serve the Lord. For He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve Him. And they said, We are witnesses he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, This stone shall be a witness against us. It's like a memorial to remind them. For it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Now what does it mean? He says, put your gods and the gods that your father served when they were in Egypt or in the land beyond the river or this Amorite place where we are now, put it away. So in essence, he's saying this. Repent of any godless practices in your life. Turn away. Repent. What is the godless practice that you have tolerated within your life? What are the habits of hell that you have? Do you have holy habits or habits of hell? Are you following the Lord and what he has and what he has set forth within his word? Are you tolerating a sin in your life? like Achan did, that it's going to bring death to you and possibly the rest of your family. What is it? That's why Joshua is saying, no, no, you've got to get rid of it. When we come to Christ, you can't receive Him unless you come empty-handed. You can't hold or harbor your sin. You've got to let it go and invite God to take it over, invite Christ in to take it. You give Him everything. We all must come empty. Can't come partially filled. We have to repent of any godless practices. That's why in verse 23 he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. So there are three things under repent of godless practices. The first is this. Rem- renounce created gods. What are, what's a created god? Something that we have made gods in our lives. We call them idols. What are the idols that we have? An idol can be anything. It can be good things that we turn into God things that in turn become bad things. It can be a career. It can be a success. It doesn't have to be a little wooden idol. And I know some people still have those, especially if you come from a, of a different country of a different background. I know as, as a pastor, we were taught when I was in school that if you're ever in a third world country and they ask you to come in and bless, your house, bless the house, go and do it. Because many of them have idols that they place within the foundation of the house to guard and protect that house. Some of you that might... uh, I know we had Will and Abby Musgrove that were here. They had even different Roman Catholic idols buried in their backyard as a means of protecting their homes. Some of us have these superstitious beliefs that we have tolerated within our lives. Those are idolatrous. Those are not from the Word of God. And even as evangelical Christians, we can promote certain behaviors and masquerade them as Christ-like when they're really idols in disguise. Our own righteousness, our own deeds by which we try to gain approval in the sight of God by doing or not doing. And in essence, we're bowing down to those idols. So we can make anything into an idol. That's why I have to, I have to admire Francis Chan. For those of you who don't know, the pastor in Simi Valley, California, founder of Cornerstone Community Church. We did a small group... Uh, uh, last fall, uh, not this past fall, but the fall before that, on Francis Chan's book Crazy Love, and I don't know if you've seen in the news recently, but Francis Chan left his church. It's quite large, several thousand, and uh, he has now gone to India, and he's going to the slums of India. I mean, he left his church. And people are asking him, "Why did you leave? Why did you leave?" I mean, you're you've got all these people calling you to do conferences. You're you got book deals. And he says, because I heard more of Francis Chan's name than I did of the Holy Spirit. Amen. He said, I was on the da- I was on verge of becoming what he called Christian famous. And people were using me and making an idol of me. God bless him. God bless him. And God bless his ministry where he's at. We can make idols even of preachers, speakers, We have to renounce created gods. And we also must reject cheap substitutes. Reject cheap substitutes. Anything else that tries to come in and try to take us away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord, we can't let it in. We can't let it have entry. We can't let a little poison into our life. We have to cut it off. We must reject cheap substitutes that try to get into us. Now look also back at the text, verse 14 again. Actually, verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. So he's saying these gods of the Amorites are still there because the people didn't drive them out entirely, but it subjugated them. The people still held on to their idols. So he's saying here, refuse cultural compromise. Refuse it. It's there. You're living in the middle of this world. Refuse their gods. They're created cheap substitutes. Refuse them. Refuse to capitulate to the culture. And you know, our culture is at war with the Christian worldview, with Christ. It is at, absolutely at war. I can't tell you how depressing it is just to go on a, a CNN.com or whatever other news site and see. The atrocities and the evil that are being committed now that are no longer seen as evil, but good. I can't wrap my brain around it. And we cannot capitulate to that. We must let the Word of God continually clean and direct our mind. See, we go to the Word of God so that we might learn the mind of God and have our mind continually directed and washed by His Word. It's not just about having a quiet time. All right? And let me, let me say that right now. You know, in Scripture, it never says you're supposed to have a daily quiet time. You know what says that? Some people, I mean, they have to have a daily quiet time. It does say pick up your cross daily. It does say renew your mind. It does say, you know, have a relationship and communion with God. But some people, and I see some Christians, are just so crushed by this burden of guilt. And they forget one thing. It's grace. You don't have to earn God's approval any longer. He's not going to love you any more or any less than he did in Christ. Amen. That's why the gospel in some ways is dangerous. It's the Grace is what goes to the prodigal son and says, you're restored. I mean, think about that. Think about the humiliation that the prodigal son caused his father in the community. And the father just wraps his arm around him and says, put the best robe on him. Give him the signet ring. Put sandals on his feet. It's an amazing picture of grace. Something we have largely forgotten. Refuse cultural compromise. Don't give in to that around us, but be continually taught by the Word of God. He says also, incline your heart. And also, choose this day whom you will serve. So the next point is, is, resolve to glorify God. This year, in the next few days, you're going to be thinking about your New Year's resolutions, right? Some of you have New Year's. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? Oh, wow. One. Wow. God bless you all. Oh. I mean, I made a New Year's resolution, and I've kept it. You know what it was? Don't make any more New Year's resolutions. <laughs> kept that one. But the reality is is some of us will make New Year's resolutions. Now, if you, or if you have, you probably don't make any more because they're depressing, right? You have a desire, this year is going to be different. I'm going to lose that extra 20 pounds. I'm going to fit into that pair of jeans again. It's like Peyton Manning in that commercial. He, he says, unless you're you know, 18 years old and a professional football player, you're not going to have six-pound you know, washboard abs anymore. My advice to you, buy bigger shirts. <laughs> That's what he says. The reality is, is we make these resolutions, and we do good for about four or five days, maybe three weeks if we're really good. I go to a gym. I guarantee that in the, you know, when I go to the gym next week, it's going to be packed with people when they're New Year's resolutions, <laughs> and they're on the treadmills, and they're on the ellipticals, and they're working out. And three weeks later, it's going to be a whole new atmosphere. Because <laughs> people, they, they, get, they, they get tired of keeping it up. Because you know why? When we try to will it all the time, we fail. Right. We try. You know, some of us try to do it. We take the, our American democratic spirit, where there's a will, there's a way, and we try to apply it to our Christian life, where we live our Christian life. I can do it! I can have this! I can do it! And we forget something. That's not what God wants. That's not how God does it. That's not how God tells us to do it. Now, I'm not saying making resolutions are bad. I mean, Jonathan Edwards, for those who don't know, he was one of the greatest um, theologians in history, specifically American history. Uh, he was considered to be the first president of what is now Princeton University. It was Back then, it was called College of New Jersey. This is in the 1700s. He has written some of the most uh, monumental works of theology. Amazing. He's also one of the fathers of what is known as the Great Awakening. This man uh, had a hard time seeing up close, and he also... Preach monotone, and he delivered a sermon called "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" that people were grabbing onto the pillars because they thought they were going to slide into hell. I, I'm serious. This was a man, that, and and he wasn't fanatical. I mean, he's just reading it like this, and people were like, ah, because it was the spirit of God had come down on this church so much. And he was a very smart man, very smart man, and he made 70 resolutions when he was a young man, uh, and he adhered to them for the most of his life and some of his resolutions are quite phenomenal he says this and remember he's speaking in the 18th century so his language is a little bit different he says resolved that i will do whatsoever i think to be most to god's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my excuse me duration without any consideration of the time whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence resolved to do whatever i think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general Resolved to do this, whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. In essence, he says, "I'm going to do God's glory and find my pleasure in God's glory, no matter what." That's the gl- that's the desire of my life. Resolved. Number two, to be continually endeavoring to find out some new invention and contrivance to promote the aforementioned things. Whatever I can do to delight more in God, I'm going to do. Number three, resolved. If ever I shall fail and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolved, number four, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be nor suffer it if I can avoid it. Number five, resolve never to lose one moment of time, but improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying, and the common circumstances which attend death. Number fourteen, resolved never to do anything out of revenge. Number seventeen, resolved that I will live. So as, I like this one. Resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Wow. Number twenty, resolved to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. He didn't want to eat too much or drink too much. Because he didn't want to fall asleep when he was studying, because then he felt like I was losing. He was losing the moment for which God had given him. Number two, and twenty-two, this is probably my favorite one. Resolved, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can, with all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. Wow. Wow. You know, most of us, though, try to do resolutions and try to attain godliness, and I know uh, by what we can do, and we live by a list of do's and don'ts that somehow show us whether we're godly or not, and we live constantly on this sliding scale whether we're in God's favor or not. And we fail to realize what Christ has done, that we're if we are trusted in Christ, that we are always in God's favor. That doesn't mean sin doesn't bring grievance to the person of God, but he sees Christ in us, and that's why he can forgive us when we repent because of what Christ has done and the unmerited favor that we have. Now, I remember once when I was in college and I was struggling with a the sin that I went to a professor and I said, how can I, how do I, how do I stop this sin? And he, and he just said this to me, you just need to get it into your head not do it anymore. And I said, I, I'm sorry, I respect you, but that's the dumbest advice I've ever heard in my life. Because it's not just about my will. That has nothing to do. I can resolve not to do something and it has nothing bearing on the person of God or His word and His will for my life. And I learned something, a lesson through that period of time. That we can't do anything without God's grace. I still come back to the mystery of God's grace. See, look in this passage, as as Joshua is saying. He says, you are not able to follow the Lord. Verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Not that God won't forgive, but he's saying there is, you're not capable of doing it by yourself. And what he is doing is, he is illustrating for us grace. He's saying, by yourself, you can't attain to the godliness that is required of you. We can't just make ourselves follow God, only through God's mercy and grace. What is it that frees us? God's grace to us. See, grace is the only thing that can break the cycle of false gods and cheap substitutes in our lives, which is why Paul wrote to Titus this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, it's grace that trains us. Grace. I still come back to grace. What makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world? Grace. Grace is dangerous. So dangerous. I I was reading uh, the book about grace. I don't know if anyone's ever read the book by Phil Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace. I don't agree with everything in this book, but I guarantee if you read this book, he doesn't define it, but he illustrates it in very profound ways. It will in some ways make you feel uncomfortable. But never in my life has a book meant so much about my understanding of grace. I learned, like I said, I've been in, theological schools, I've traveled in different countries, and I still can't even begin to wrap my head around grace. And he quotes D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a pastor in England, died in 1981. Pretty phenomenal guy. They called him the doctor. He was a medical doctor turned pastor. And he says this about grace. He says, "...there is thus clearly a sense in which the message of justification by faith only can be dangerous." And likewise, with the message that salvation is entirely of grace. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you had better examine your sermons again. And you had better make sure that you are really preaching the salvation that is offered in the New Testament to the ungodly, to the sinner, to those who are enemies of God. There is in this kind of dangerous element about the true presentation of the doctrine of salvation. Grace has about it the scent of scandal, is what Yancey says. When someone asked the theologian, Karl Barth, what he would say to Adolf Hitler, he replied, Jesus died for your sins. Hitler's sins? Judas' sins? Has grace have no limit? He leaves us with that tension. Could he forgive Hitler? Could he forgive Osama bin Laden and Osama bin Laden be in glory? Some of us don't want that. Some of us want him to, to burn. For what he has done. But God's grace is deeper and greater. Than even him. Greater than what Stalin did. Greater than what Hitler did. Some of us can't fathom that. Because we have such a very narrow and small picture of God's grace. God's grace is so much greater than all our sin. Where sin abounded. Grace abounded all the more. So, what I would encourage us to do, and there's three things that I, if you haven't made any resolutions, I think you can keep these. And three things that I would encourage you to do, after looking at the the Israelites, seeing how their lives were lived as an example for us, written down for our benefit, and there's three lessons I'd like us to take away. Number uh, Letter A is this. Spend this year learning about grace. Ask God to teach us about grace as a body as an individual, just because we might have it in our name and I might say good morning to Grace doesn't mean we even begin to understand it. I named my daughter, my second daughter, her middle name is Grace because I still am trying to fathom it. Learn about Grace. The second thing is this, and it's the other subject that I have a hard time still understanding is the love of God. Remember the love of God. As this next year looks ahead, we're trying to get rid of those habits of hell and cultivate those habits of holiness to be Godlier to be more, to be to be walker in closer close com, closer communion with God. It's not about willing to do it. It's about learning about grace, remembering the love of God, and then living in grace. Live life of grace. Are you living a life of grace? Are you gracious towards your family? Are you gracious towards your co-workers? Are you gracious towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Someone said, you love God, I think it was Dorothy Day actually, (laughs) said you love God as much as you love the worst person in your life. Why? Because of grace. Because of grace. And then, as 2010 draws to a close and we begin to enter the threshold of a new year, I hope that we not only learn about grace, remember the love of God and live in grace, but we rejoice in what God's going to do in our lives this next year and in our church. I'm praying that God does a work within our church that only He can do, that He turns sinners to Himself, that He helps to make us a lighthouse in the midst of our community, individuals that are exhibiting Christ in our professions, as we're learning what it means to pray. We're not doing these things out of mere obligation, but we're doing it out of delight. One of the things that Yancey actually talks about in here is one summer he was uh, finishing his graduate degree and he was forced to learn German. While his friends were out on Lake Michigan and having a lot of fun and sailing and, and just enjoying the summer, he had to spend three hours a night parsing German words. I mean, anybody's taken German, and I'm sorry if you are German, but that's literally hell on earth. <laughs> it's just terrible. And he said, You know, I did it so I would get a degree and I've forgotten everything about it. All I got was a sheet of paper. And I did it out of obligation. And I hated every second of it. He said, but, or he said, that's how the world works in a lot of ways. We just do what we need to do to get by. He goes, but imagine it was the woman that I loved and she only spoke German. He said, how much would I delight in learning German? I would learn every word so I could converse with her, so I could write sweet notes to her, so I could share these things with her. It would be my delight to do so. He said, that's God's grace to us. We don't follow Him out of just mere obedience and obligation. We do it because it's a delight. A delight in doing so. I pray that each one of us might rejoice in what God's going to do and we might all grow in grace in the coming year. And I pray that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in Him, that He will—he can forgive the worst of sinners, worst of sin. doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. Jesus Christ can forgive. We just need to call out to Him. And repentance and truth. Repentance and belief. What I believe, help me with my unbelief. And we say, Lord, I confess with my mouth that you are, you are the Savior. Lord, I believe in my heart that you have raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And I put my trust in him. It's simple as that. Because there is no, no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. All alike are under the wrath of God. And only by faith in Jesus Christ are we saved. Let's close our time with a word of prayer. Our Father and our God, you are utterly amazing. Today, as we've gone through so much history, uh, we've had such a drinking from, the, drinking from your word. Lord, not just sips, but gulps. So We're considering the history of your word and the history of how you worked within your people, Israel. Lord, I ask that you place your blessing upon our church so we may not forget what your hand has done in our midst how You've worked within our body the last year, the last 10 years, the last 25 years. And Lord, we look forward in faith at what You're going to do in our midst. We know that we're not here by our own power, our own prestige, our own knowledge. That means nothing. It's all about You and what You have done. And Lord, may we continually bask in the ocean of grace. May we continually love You with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. May we continually love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And plead with them that they might be reconciled to you and know that they too can drink the drink from the fountain of your living water that comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray your blessing on our body and those that couldn't be here today that are traveling. May you glorify yourself in our fellowship in the year of 2011. May your name receive praise because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.